Let's open in our Bibles together to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study. We're in chapter 11 this morning and we'll make our way into chapter 12. As you're turning there, I see we have a very beloved uh, family here with us this morning who hasn't been with us in a long time. Sam and Kate Milan are here. For those of you who may not know, Sam's uh, health was, has just been gone through a difficult road the last uh, number of months and has not been able to be here. And uh, it's just, it, we love you, brother. We're glad you're here. Amen. Amen. Well, let me read for us, just to give us context of where we are. We're starting in verse 27. If you remember the last time we studied, in the passage right before this, Jesus created quite a scene by going into the temple and placing his judgment upon the chief priests and their ministries there. And now, this account, it's the next day after that, and he's making his way back into the temple, and this is what happens. So let's start reading in verse 27. Mark writes, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Father, as we look at this passage, we pray for open hearts and minds, Pray that the Holy Spirit was do, would do his work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think with me uh, about all the people that you are accountable to 
in your life? Who are you accountable to? All of us here, we're accountable to the governing officials, to law enforcement. For those of us who are working here, we are accountable to our bosses, our employers. If you're married, you are accountable to your spouse. We are all accountable to the spiritual leaders that God has placed in our lives. We are accountable to many different people in our lives. But the sad tendency of the human heart is that my heart, your heart, is bent towards selfishness, is bent towards pride, and we don't always like being under the authority of someone else or being under the accountability of others. We don't always like being accountable to the law enforcement when they pull us over. Uh, We don't always like being held accountable by our employer when they call us out on something. Even our spouse or our spiritual leaders, we don't always like to be accountable to. And worst of all, we don't like always to be held accountable by the one to whom we are ultimately accountable, the Lord himself. And we see that play out in this passage this morning with the example of the chief priests. They get accountability backwards. They come to Jesus thinking that Jesus is accountable to them when really they are accountable to him. They are upset by what he has done the day before in the temple when he came in and turned over all the cash registers, as it were, and drove out all the business people, getting the commercialism out of the temple. And they come to him in verse 28, and they call him to account. Take a look at verse 28. They say to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, they're essentially saying, what gives you the right? And Jesus' reply to them and the parable that he tells about them shows us an important truth that is going to be unfolded in this passage, that we are ultimately accountable to God. We are ultimately accountable to God. I love Jesus' response to the chief priests because it's so brilliant what he does. When Jesus replies to the chief priest's question, he does what Jesus so often does. That is, he doesn't answer with an answer. He answers with a question. Take a look at verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus replies to them and says, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. In other words, he's asking, the ministry of John the Baptist, was that a God thing or was that just a man thing? Now, we might read that and we scratch our heads and wonder, why does he answer in this way? Why not just answer them straightforwardly? Why does he bring up John the Baptist? Well, it's actually quite a clever thing that Jesus is doing because he knows that everyone respected John the Baptist and his ministry. Everybody knew that John the Baptist was no ordinary ministry, but was specially appointed and anointed of God. And what was John the Baptist's message? In John 1, chapter 29, uh, John 1, verse 29 and 34, we see John speaking about Jesus. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, 
the Son of God who had come into the world. And by Jesus pointing to John the Baptist's ministry, he was cutting the legs out underneath the chief priests because to bring John the Baptist into question would be to bring God himself into question. So how are the chief priests going to respond? I love this. They realize that they've been duped, they've been outwitted by Jesus, and so in verse 31, they essentially uh, ask Jesus, can you give us a minute? And they, they huddle up together, and in their embarrassment, they start whispering to one another, how do we answer? What are we going to do? Verse 31, it says, if we say from heaven, well, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? But should we really say from man? Because then people are going to be really worked up. I mean, we know that John the Baptist was a prophet. I know, one bright spark among them says, we'll just tell him we don't know. So they, they leave the huddle, they come over to Jesus, all right, we've got our answer. Jesus says, okay, and they say to Jesus, we don't know what fools they looked like. They knew the truth, but they weren't willing to acknowledge the truth. This has been the problem of mankind from the very beginning. Paul writes about it in chapter one of Romans that our natural tendency is knowing what is true of God and the way that he has worked, we do not acknowledge it. He wrote, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Refusing to acknowledge the truth here, the chief priests are showing themselves to, be, to have the foolish heart and darkened heart of those who refuse to submit. And how does Jesus respond? He responds to them in verse 33 by saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He was not accountable to them They were accountable to him. But Jesus goes on to tell a story to them, a parable, a parable that you and I know as the parable of the tenants. And what he is doing in this story is fleshing out even more our tendency uh, to, to kick against being accountable to God. And he's showing us in this, pa- in this story that he tells how we are, what we are accountable to God for, the specific things that we are accountable to God for. He picks as his story a theme that was common for his day, the theme of farming. And he also picks a problem that was prevalent in his day in the farming community. And that is tenant farmers who were not accountable to those who hired them. In Jesus' day, if you were a landowner, uh, oftentimes what would happen is you would establish a farm, and then you would go away and you would hire tenant farmers to oversee and steward that farm for you, and then you would reap some of the produce of what they've done with your land. So Jesus begins the story, and he starts in this way in verse 1, if you take a look at it, of chapter 12. He begins his story by talking about a farmer who has planted a vineyard with great care and intentionality. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. You can see the farmer has taken great care and great interest in planting this vineyard in a way that it will grow and be substantial. 
And everyone would have known, as Jesus was telling the beginning of this story, that he was referring to what God had done in establishing Israel as his people. In fact, the language that he uses in verse 1 is almost identical to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah, writing about what God did for Israel, said, my beloved God had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. You think about all the history of how God was faithful to Israel, had brought them out of Egypt, had established them in their own land, made them a kingdom beyond all the other kingdoms. And why? He looked for it to yield grapes. He wanted spiritual fruit to come forth from his people for his glory. And he gave the stewardship of this vineyard, Israel, over to the chief priests, to the spiritual leadership of Israel so that they might bear fruit. The first thing we can see from this parable is that we are accountable to God to reap spiritual fruit. We are accountable to God to reap spiritual fruit. Think about all that God has done in establishing us as his people, his church, far more than he ever did in establishing Israel in that he planted the vineyard of the church at the cost of his very dear son. It was the blood of his son that watered the vineyard and makes it grow. Far more price than he ever paid for Israel. And he has done this so that we might bear fruit. Jesus tells us in John 15, 5 and 8, telling us about this relationship we have to him as his vineyard. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Christ has given himself called us to himself so that we might glorify God by bearing a life of righteousness, turning away from, uh, from sin and repenting to live a life of righteousness. And he gives us his spirit to produce that fruit. Just as Galatians 5, through 23 says, the spirit is producing in us the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I can already tell some of you are, it's taking everything not to sing the song right now, the children's song about the fruit of the Spirit. God holds us accountable to reap spiritual fruit. He has established us so that we might reap. But number two, Jesus goes on to show us that we are accountable to God also for our response to his word. We are accountable to God for our response to his word. Take a look at verse two. In verse 2, the story takes a turn in that the harvest time has come and the owner of the farm sends messengers to come and get some of the fruit that is owed him by his tenants. But what do they do to him? In verse 2, it says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some 
they killed. Notice the, the patient graciousness of the farmer. They mistreat one of his servants. He says, okay, I'll send them another one. Yet worse treatment. Okay, I'll send them another. On and on it goes. On and on it goes. And more and more his messengers are mistreated. Everyone would have known once again as Jesus was speaking here that he was referring to how Israel has treated all of the prophets that God had raised up in their history. That in his grace and mercy, he wanted them to, to know the truth. And so he sent them prophets with his message to turn and to repent, to, to turn away from their sin and turn towards him. But more and more throughout the history of Israel, they mistreated God's messengers. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we are told about the bloody history of God's people and the prophets that God had raised up. 2 Chronicles says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's patient. He kept sending messenger after messenger after messenger. He had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but despite that, they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Hebrews writes and says, that should say verse 38, by the way, 35 to 38, talking about how the prophets of old were mistreated. It said some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. We are held accountable, friends, for our response to God's word. Actually, we are held even more accountable to our response from God's word, even more accountable than Israel was, because we have been given the fullness of God's revelation. Not only do we have the word that Israel was given, but we have what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus written out for us in the New Testament. And we know what he is going to continue to do at his coming. And he holds us accountable to his word. That's why one of our core values here at Grace Church is the Bible, our authority. We hold ourselves accountable to this book because this is God speaking his truth to us. Uh, being hardened against God's word was not just a problem in Israel, but Paul warns us in 2 Timothy that this is a temptation that we as the church will even face. When he wrote to the young pastor Timothy telling him that he ought to preach the word, he tells him that there is coming a time when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul is not talking about the unbelieving world there. He's talking about the church. He's talking about those who profess to follow Jesus, that even you and I are tempted in the hardness of our hearts to turn away from the truth and to turn towards myth and false teaching. That's why we ought to pray for soft hearts, soft hearts that would allow God's word to do God's work 
in our hearts because this book, the scripture, God's word is a living word. We're told in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So that begs the question, what is something that we can do, each one of us here as a church family, to keep our hearts softened, that we not, might not be like these tenants who mistreated God's word, but softened to accept and absorb God's word? A great tool that I heard of recently was uh, from John Piper, what he calls his I-O-U-S's. Uh, this is something that John Piper prays through every morning before he reads the Bible for himself in his daily Bible reading. And what it is, it's just lines, one-line prayers that he took from the book of Psalms, helping him to keep his heart soft before the Lord uh, and his word. And these, this is what he prays. Whoa, we just flipped all the way forward, if we can go back. All right, incline my heart to you is the first thing that he prays. Incline my heart to you. Uh, we all know what it's like when we sit down with God's word. Our hearts are going in a million different directions, and we need God's help to get our heart down one channel focused on him and him alone. We ask him to incline our hearts to him specifically. Oh, open my eyes, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Um, I told the first service, and they were, they were shocked, and, and no one raised their hands with me, and I felt very alone in this, but I asked them, do you, like me, ever read your Bible, and once you're done reading it, you just scratch your head and wonder, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Am I the only one? I still am the only one. Okay, good. Wonderful. And then I said, I'm never going to confess anything as a pastor ever again. You're not going to trust me. We need God's help. We need God's help to see the beauty, the truth, the majesty of all that is contained in his word. Because you and I, we don't have the mind of God sometimes to comprehend the wonder of what is there. We need God's help in opening our eyes to behold the beauty. And then we pray, you unite my heart to fear your name. Whatever God's word says to us, whether it encourages us or convicts us, that we would have a heart with, to, to respond in the due reverence that he deserves, a heart of obedience, a heart that fears him out of a heart of well-placed love to the Lord. And then lastly, S, we pray, satisfy me, satisfy me with your steadfast love. I don't know how many times I walk away from God's word surprised at just how little I measure up. Sometimes you read God's word and you think to yourself, how could I ever approximate to this? The wonder of it is in Christ, his steadfast love rests upon us. He doesn't reject us, but he helps us. He takes us where we are, and by his grace, he grows us. We are accountable friends, to our response to God's word, not to be like the tenants, but to be soft-hearted and embrace the truth. But thirdly and lastly, Jesus teaches us in this story that we are accountable to God also for our reception of his son. 
we are accountable to God for our reception of his son. The climax of Jesus' story in this parable takes place in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6, the climax of the story. Jesus says, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Two things to notice about who this son was. Number one, he's mentioned as the beloved son. And in verse seven, he is called the heir. He was to inherit all that belonged to the father. Isn't it obvious that Jesus is talking about himself and his relationship as God's son to the father? What, what did God say at Jesus' baptism? When Jesus came up out of the water, God said, this is my beloved son. He said it too at the transfiguration. And we know the New Testament describes Jesus as the heir of God's kingdom who would inherit all the nations through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is speaking of himself here. And how will this son be treated? Let's take a look at verse 7. In verse 7, the story goes on. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus is foreshadowing here what would happen to him in just a matter of days, that these chief priests would come, they would condemn him, and Jesus would be killed, all so that they could dethrone Jesus from his rightful place and keep their place of great power and prestige among God's people. And what would the response be for their actions. Take a look at verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God would bring judgment upon the people of Israel, upon the ministry of the chief priests, and he would start something new, a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, a, a new people made up not just of Israelites, but people of every tribe and nation, a people who would be built upon this cornerstone that had been rejected by the original builders of God's kingdom. Jesus, the one who was rejected by man, but established as the one on whom everything depends, the one on whom all of us must build our lives, the one on whom the entire church rests its foundation, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, in quoting Psalm 118 here, says this was the Lord's doing. The Lord orchestrated that Jesus would be rejected. The Lord through uh, the death of Jesus, would, would raise him up again to make him the all-time conqueror, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and set him up as the cornerstone on whom all of salvation and God's redemptive plan rests. We are to build our lives on the cornerstone that is Christ. His foundation is a foundation that cannot be shaken. 
on the cornerstone of Christ, we are secure. We are loved. The question is, have you built your life on this cornerstone? Or, like the builders, have you rejected him? The beauty of the gospel is when we build upon the cornerstone, we can be confident in our accountability towards God because Jesus has done everything we need to give us a new heart, a new desire so that we can actually reap spiritual fruit by the Spirit at work in and through us. We can, with a new heart given to us through faith in the gospel, respond positively to his word. And we can walk with Jesus daily receiving him as we should in love and relationship. But the question for us this morning, the question that the text leaves with us is this. Will you hold yourself accountable to God? This text does not end on a happy note. This text ends on a sad note. Take a look at verse 12. In verse 12, the chief priests make their response they decide what they're going to do with the truth that Jesus had told them. Verse 12 says, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They had the opportunity to submit. They had the opportunity to come to him in faith and love and trust. But despite knowing what was true about him, and the truth that he had told against them, they continue in their defiance, and they walk away. Friends, this morning, the Holy Spirit may be opening up your heart in some way to a way that you have not been bearing the fruit that God desires that you bear. You may be in a season of life where you've been kicking against his word despite his gracious persistence and patience and continuing to, to tell you the truth and and put friends in your life to, 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 to show you the better way or even hear it, grace through listening to the Bible taught and still you find yourself turning the other way. This morning, for all who will lay down their pride, for all who will stop resisting the, the gracious persistence of God, there is a cornerstone that was rejected for you so that you might be accepted. And his arms are open for any and all who will come and lay themselves down upon him, build their lives upon the cornerstone that cannot be moved. And for those of us who have already done that, but we find in our hearts that there is repentance that needs to happen in our hearts this morning, the offer is the same. Come to me, the cornerstone. I will take you in. You are secure in my arms. Will you hold yourself accountable? to God this morning. Let's pray.